I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 2. You can look it up in your blue pew Bible there. Just as you're turning there, I just want to thank the worship team for leading us in these wonderful songs and for Pastor Jeff as he led us through that liturgy. Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to pick up right in the middle of the first paragraph. I'm going to begin in verse 7. Titus chapter 2 and verse 7, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And as Jeff reminded us, this is the very Word of God, and we should esteem it as such. Follow along as we read together and hear from God's Word. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, as we have heard from your word, as we have sung your praises, we are humbled to be able to be in your presence right now. We are humbled by this great privilege to hear your word and to know that you care enough for us that you would have us to be changed and challenged and corrected and encouraged by your word. So we pray that you would do that work among us this morning. We thank you for this church, for the work that you're doing in and through this church. We pray that you would continue to sustain a witness in this church, that the gospel would go forward from this place, that this gathering of people would continue on working together in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We pray that you would meet our financial needs. We pray that you would provide for all that we need to pay for our building, to pay for staff, and to pay even for the the needs to reach out into our community and to serve those even within our own church. Lord, we do pray for those who come and gather on Sundays who do not know Jesus Christ. We pray that, that even the compelling summons of Jesus would come to them and that they would turn from their sins 
and that they would turn even to the grace of Jesus Christ and that they would repent and believe upon him and so be saved and be baptized and be a part of God's people. Lord, we do pray that you would continue to raise up godly pastors for churches. Lord, we pray for this dark city. We recognize that even since Calvary Grace began, there's been over a half a million souls added to this region. And Lord, there is a desperate need for more gospel-preaching churches in Calgary. And so we pray that you would raise up more churches, more pastors, more heralds of the gospel. Lord, that's our great need more than any other needs that we might think. To this end, we pray for one of the churches in the city that is looking for a pastor. We pray for New City Presbyterian Church. We pray that a godly pastor would be brought to that work and that they would be able to flourish as a gospel preaching hub. Lord, we also pray that you would thwart and withhold and hold back the schemes of the wicked. Lord, we see so many troubling things in our world, in our society, even in our country. Lord, we pray, we recognize you. there is great judgment on our land, but we ask that you would remember mercy. We pray for mercy upon the farmers in the Netherlands and in Sri Lanka and the citizens of Panama and even the farmers here in Canada. We pray that you would continue by your mercy to give us today our daily bread. Lord, we are so blessed with such abundance, but we don't want to take it for granted. Oh Lord, help us to be grateful for all that you've given us. Lord, we do pray that you would grant revival to this city and this land. For all of the problems that we see around us, we know that ultimately all that matters is whether people have, had, have been given new hearts and have been given an inheritance, a citizenship in heaven. And Lord, we pray that you would do a spectacular work in this city where people who hated you and shook their fist at you were turned from rebels into family members. Lord, we pray that you would save many in and through this church and through other churches. Lord, we pray that you would bring revival even to Calgary and we would praise you for it. But Lord, now as we hear from your word, we ask that you would start with us, cause us to be grounded in your word, that we would be your humble servants, that we would serve you, the Lord God. Come and help us to do that even now, for we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Just a, and just a note before I begin, it can get warm in here. If you have small children and you're struggling or just, you know, maybe, maybe you're going to go to sleep during the sermon, you could go down in the basement. The live stream is down there. It's nice and cool down there if you're struggling. I won't be offended if you get up and leave. Uh, you, you might be offended at me and get up and leave, but that's, that's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll live with that. Serving the Lord, which is what we're all about here, serving the Lord requires waiting on the Lord. Serving the Lord requires waiting on the Lord. 
There, there's a reason that servers in a restaurant, servers are called waiters. And when we serve God, we wait at His beck and call. Now, what does a good waiter do when they're serving at a restaurant? You know, they're, they're quick when they're needed, and they're patient when they're not. And of course, you know, when, when they're doing that, they kind of they have this, this zeal in waiting. They're waiting to spring into action, but they wait patiently. Patiently, but very attentively. Of course, you know what the bad waiter is like. My wife and I were out to eat with some folks on Friday, you know, and you kind of know the difference between a good and a bad waiter. A, a bad waiter, they never show up when you need them, right? Or, you know, they're taking the plate away and you still got a couple of bites left. In Paul's letter to, to Titus, we've seen the way that Christians are to serve one another and others because of their orders from the Lord. They serve the Lord, and so then they're attentive to fulfill the duties, the duties to their spouse, the duties to their families, the duties to their church. Now, as we continue on where I read, I began in the middle of that paragraph in chapter 2, because we couldn't get to it, so I'm going to finish that off. There's two more groups that are part of this servant class. And there are pastors like Titus. And then there's also another group, a group known as the bond servants, or or we would call them slaves. And we're going to look at these in turn. But then we're going to see that the ground, the foundation, the bottom of all of this attentive serving, this zeal in waiting, it comes because of the appearance of grace. The appearance of grace. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the, this kind of servant class, these two groups. And then we're going to see the appearance of grace and how that's the foundation for what I'm describing and what I think Paul is getting at here. Namely, this zeal in waiting. Zeal in waiting. And that's the title of the sermon. What we see there in verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Well, that's, that's this description of a pastor, in this case, Titus. Pastors serve God. They serve God. And so they're under obligations in how they live. They, they can't be mercenaries. Pastors can't be mercenaries. They're not free agents. And in Calgary, just in the last little bit, getting a little frustrated with these free agents with the local hockey team. But anyways, that's a, that's a hockey comment. You're all Oiler fans anyways. There's hardly any Flames fans in this church. But anyways, you don't, you don't know what I'm talking about. Whatever. You can anticipate, though, that what Paul expects of Titus He's going to expect Titus to act like an elder. So he's actually got to be a model of maturity. That's what what he would expect. And so that's what 
we have in verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model, an example, a paradigm, a template, a model of good works. And so, you know, pastors then, they're going to model even the good work in their teaching, as he says. They're going to model integrity. There's not going to no, be this phoniness. There's no lies. There's going to be dignity. There's a certain kind of a, a decorum and a gravity in how they speak and act. And then there is this sound speech, verse 8. And we've seen this word sound now repeatedly. And it's the idea of it's healthy and it's health-giving. This health-giving kind of speech. And so that's kind of the characteristics that he's going to have. Pastors model then good works. Now, you know, if you know me, and you know any of the pastors, you know we're not perfect. The more you know me, the less perfect I will seem to be. And, and that will be the case. And nevertheless, with all pastors following the Bible, there ought to be a general consistency in their pattern of life so that anybody can look at them and see, well, this guy's the real deal. He's the same at church as he is on a Monday morning. He's the same watching sports as he is counseling. You know, it's, it's just the same person. He's not a lightweight. There's a certain, there's a certain dignity in how he speaks. But when he talks, it's life-giving and truthful. There's integrity to it. And it actually, you know, you come away from such a pastor, you come away feeling, yeah, I, I feel a little bit better. My, my own health seems to, spiritually speaking, seems to have improved just by the things that he said. And that's what a pastor should be. So, no cussing pastors, no pastors with mistresses, no pastors with quirky doctrines, no pastors trying to be movie stars, no pastors working out their own insecurities by blasting the church. I mean, there's, there's lots of those examples out in the world, and people think, well, that's what pastors are like. But that's not the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is of simple, and I stress, simple men of God modeling good works. That's all they are. That's what pastors are to be. And if you have pastors like that, well, then you want to pray for them to stay that way. You want to pray for them that they would simply be models of good works, in, in particularly, not only in their actions, but in their speech. Now, jump down to verse 15. Right at the end there, verse 15, the last verse that I read. This is where Titus was to understand his servant role clearly. And that's why I'm dealing with it now, because it actually deals with Titus as a pastor. He serves his Lord first, so he serves others best. And he's ordered in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He is ordered. He's under orders. He's told by God, you need to declare, you need to exhort and rebuke. 
This is the kind of teaching that announces, it encourages, but it also confronts. And he does it with an authority that is given by God to his office, to his role in the church. He's not qualitatively better than anybody else, but he has a role and an office to fulfill, and God has delegated authority to that office. And because of then that delegated authority, the pastor's message should not be disregarded. And that's at the end of verse 15. It's not to be disregarded. If he is bringing his message from the authority of God's word and he is being faithful to his calling as a pastor in his office in the church, then his, his message, in this case Titus's, was not to be disregarded. And likely in Crete, they were saying, this Titus, who does he think he is? Who, you know, I don't have to listen to him. Well, if Titus was just shooting off with his own opinions, you wouldn't have to. But in his office as a pastor, and in the delegated authority that he has, and he brings the word of God, he's not to be disregarded. Titus and any pastor should not speak for themselves but they should speak as a delegated authority, speaking and acting with a zeal to serve God first so that he can serve others best. And that's hopefully what I want to do and the pastors at Calvary Grace. We want to serve God first in order to serve you all best. And if we're serving God, that's the best for you. And I I do praise God that at this church, The congregation is zealous to serve, and so they make my work as a pastor more joyful, and for all all of the pastors. So, So we do then, as Hebrews 13, 17 indicates, we do this knowing that we have to give an account to God for our work. That's what pastors have to do, because pastors are slaves or bondservants of our Lord. You know, he's our Lord, he's our master, he's our owner. We serve him first in order to serve others best. So that's why even though the term slave or servant isn't in this context referring to the pastor, that's actually the function of what's going on. So there's a style or manner in this delegated authority that that the pastor is to have And the result at the end of verse 8 is that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. That there's this this manner then of his speech. You just can't condemn it. Of course, somebody could condemn it, but not rightfully condemn it. And so there's that kind of dignity and integrity and gravity and health-giving speech that this pastor has. That's the kind of servant a pastor ought to be. But look back in verse 9. Back in verse 9, the last group applies to all of us in one way or another. All of us, including me. Paul speaks about slaves. The ESV says bond servants. Now, nobody, nobody wants to think of themselves as a slave. Nobody wants to do that. You know, the Pharisees, they said to Jesus in John 8, 33, they said, we have never been enslaved to anyone. Nobody wants to think of themselves as slaves. But of course, 
the Pharisees, the Jews at the time, they, they'd been political slaves to Greece and then to Rome, and even slave, they'd been in slavery back in Babylon. There'd been lots of slavery in their history. The issue that Paul wants Titus to address in Crete and for the New Covenant believer today is the question, how are slaves supposed to act? Do they rail against the fact that they are the employee and not the employer, and so the relationship is unjust? That's where all of your Marxist theory comes from. No. Slaves, or verse 9, bond servants, it says, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. And Joe, you just see, even with that phrase, you just point out, submission is not unique to wives. We looked at that last time. All of us have to serve somebody. We all do. And this, pris- this principle has to be seen in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ and all of his attendant delegated authorities throughout all creation and all of society. I heard this Scottish preacher, Eric Alexander, say once, he said, he said omnipotence has servants everywhere. Omnipotence has servants everywhere. So God is orchestrating all of creation to serve Him. That's His sovereignty. But ask yourself, you're, th- you know, maybe you think of yourself, what's the term? You're a, you're a wage slave, right? You might say. Or you're a tax slave. You, you know, with, there's a date in the calendar where it speaks of, oh, after this, is, it's tax freedom day. Like, you've got to work that long to pay your tax, pay all the taxes that are owed, and after that, you're, you're free. Maybe you might think of yourself as a regime slave. How do you describe yourself? Could you affirm Paul's description applied to you? You know, what does it say? He says in verse 9, they're submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's, that's it. Is that you? Like, are you well-pleasing, not argumentative? You know, talking to, talking to guys who are trying to hire employees, it's very difficult to find employees in this coming generation who desire to be well-pleasing, but rather what they get is a lot of folks that are quite argumentative. They don't actually want to do the job. They want to kind of bristle against the job, but that's not how a Christian should be. Verse 10, they're, they're not pilfering. In other words, they're not stealing from the boss, stealing from the company, stealing from the government, whether financially or like supplies, or stealing time. That seems to be a lot of what goes on. Lots of stealing of time. But rather, verse 10, but showing all good faith. And in this case, good faith is being a faithful servant, a faithful employee, a a faithful citizen. What's the point? The point is, you see it there kind of in the structure, verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
So there's an adornment. There's a, there's a style. And you've seen, even from last time, we, we talked about this certain decorum or style. The adorning of the doctrine, that, it, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine, adorning the doctrine, that, I think, is what is missing in a lot of churches today. It's the adorning of the doctrine. Many churches don't even have the doctrine, so that's true. But even the, the churches that have the doctrine, they don't adorn the doctrine. They might believe good things, but the adornment of it is ugly. And this is what, the God, what godly saints do in ungodly cities. This is an ungodly city. Ungodly. But godly saints, they adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. There's a certain beauty. There's a certain cosmetic. There's a certain aesthetic. All of this beauty that goes along with what they believe. Now sadly for all of us, I think we struggle to adorn the doctrine of the saving God. I think if, you know, just to think of this adornment picture, if, you, if our lives were put on kind of the, the catwalk at a global fashion show, all that we would be wearing would be cheap imitations of the world's fashions. We are all tempted to look like the world, to respond like the world, to have our memes look like the world. And it doesn't adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, that we are in need of saving, and our God is the Savior who saves us. That's what we need. And we, that needs to mark how we handle ourselves, how we live, how we speak. So there's a decorum that Christians should have. It's a look, it's a style, it's a manner. And it's going to be different than other people. Now, this is not like, um, say, uh, the Hutterian brethren, the Hutterites. If there's any Hutterites here, I don't know if there is any. We'll talk to you after. But you know, if you know any Hutterites, they wear distinctive black and white. Um, you know, they'll, the, the guys will wear black suspenders. They don't wear belts. The gals wear long black dresses. And they do that going back into their heritage, back to Europe, they do that to show a distinction between themselves and their community and others elsewhere in the world. But that's not the biblical way. That's not the decorum that's being talked about. The decorum of Christians is through us being sober-minded, discreet, self-controlled in our manner of living. It's the decorum of a virtuous life. So when people look at you, like this is a kind of a key question at work. When people look at how you live, how you speak, how you respond, would they guess that you're a Christian? Or would they hear how you speak, how you act, what you think about and focus on, and then when they hear you're a Christian, they're shocked. They never would have thought that you're a Christian just by how you speak and how you act and how you treat people. So something, it's either going to match up or it's going to be incongruous. It's going to be out of step. And that's confronting to all of us because people are watching. You know, it's always been said, 
the person, the people who aren't Christians, they can spot the inconsistencies in Christians very, very quickly. I'm not talking about generally in the world. I'm talking about people you know. Your, your relatives, people you work with, they can spot your sin quicker than you can. And you just know that, oh, I, my, the decorum of my Christian life, it's actually not very Christ-like here. But that's what these bond servants are being called to be. He recognizes that there's slavery. There's these situations. You say, well, I don't want to be in this situation. Yeah, but you are in that situation. Are you living in a Christ-like way in that situation? And when we live with this decorum of a virtuous life, we live that way. When we do it, we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We show that God saving us is more important than our circumstances. God saving us empowers us to be like Christ, even if our circumstances are not so powerful. We don't have lots of agency. We don't have lots of opportunity. But what we do have, well, we're going we're gonna to live in a certain distinct kind of way. And I think that's challenging for all of us. When we do this, just as we saw back in verse 5 for the young women, the Word of God then is not reviled. When we do this, just like the pastor we saw in verse 8, then no one can have anything evil to say about us. I mean, they might say, they might say stuff, but they don't have anything to say that's evil about us that's true. And right now, in the churches, what's our, what's our biggest issue probably? Is the issue of hypocrisy. Where people see the churches and they're, look, and they're like, oh, well there's, all, there's abuse in the churches. There's ungodliness, all this wicked, evil behavior in the churches. So why should we listen to them? So it's incumbent upon us to, to then have this decorum to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, to prioritize that God is the one who saves us, not we save ourselves. And then when we do that, it humbles us. We don't have to be perfect, but we rely on the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, which we confess every Sunday morning and should confess every day. Now, you might be wondering, okay, pastor, it's all fine. You're saying all this. You don't know my situation, though. You don't know how hard it is for me at work, or you don't know how, how hard my marriage is, or you don't know how hard it is to be in this church. You just don't know how hard it is. So you're, you're telling me all this stuff. So how? How am I going to live with this supposed decorum of the virtuous life that Paul seems to be laying this out? How am I going to do that? Practically, how does that work? How does this kind of service to God happen that kind of then expresses itself in a changed life. How, how, how am I going to adorn the doctrine of God, my Savior? Well, the answer, of course, is that you need to be grounded. You need to be grounded. You need to be tied to a foundation. Grounded in God's Word. But grounded 
also by what this passage says. The structure in verse 11 shows us that there's a ground, a basis, a foundation, and it grounds us with that little word in verse 11, for. You see it there. Don't take my word for it. You see it right there. For, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. That's the ground. All of the adornment of the Christian servant, the Christian husband, the Christian wife, the Christian pastor, of all the Christian servant class, all of it is grounded in verse 11 and following, for the grace of God has appeared. Now just consider that phrase and what it means. For the grace of God has appeared. It's just a simple reminder that the most important thing in your life is not something bad that has happened to you that's come out of nowhere. You, you know, whatever it might be, whatever you think is the bad thing that has happened to you, it's not the most important thing. It's not that you woke up one morning and there's war in Eastern Europe. Or it's, it's not that you discovered that you wouldn't be able to keep your job because of your choices. It's, it's not because you wanted to get out of bed and you couldn't get out of bed because you were sick with an illness that you didn't know what it was. It's not that in a moment you can have your hopes and your dreams dashed and crashed. It's not the most important thing in your life. Because these traumas and these tragedies, they're not the most important thing about you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the most important thing about you is that Jesus Christ has appeared. He has appeared. He has appeared and His grace, His undeserved favor, His benevolence, His blessing that you don't deserve, His grace has appeared in your life in a special and specific way. That is the most important thing about you. Not your background, not your foreground, not your traumas, not your tragedies, not your temptations. It is that the grace of God has appeared. This appearance, this appearance of the grace of God, this is like a burst of light. It's... It's like what I do so often at night. You've got my phone, and it's dark, and you get that blue flashlight that comes on, and it's always turned towards your eyeball. And then you're, then you're blinded even as you're wanting to go to sleep. It's that burst of light that is, you can't ignore it. It's blasting you. Even in the darkness, it's blasting you. The Greek word for, for this term, the appearing, is the word epiphino. Epiphino. And it's this idea of a burst of light. But it's where we get our English word, epiphany. It's an epiphany. What is, just ask yourself, what is the greatest epiphany in your life, if I was just to ask you? 
What's the greatest epiphany in your life? When a husband meets his wife? When a mother has a baby? Amazing epiphanies. Maybe the day you realize that there was more to life than wine, women, and song? Was that an epiphany? Of all of these epiphanies, they all pale. They're all, they're all dim by comparison to the epiphany of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God adding to Himself a true human nature without mixture, without diminishing the divine nature, nor diminishing the human nature, yet impossible to separate. That epiphany, the virgin conception of the Messiah child, born in the womb of a sinner who needed to be redeemed by the one that she bore. Jesus Christ's birth was an epiphany. But the epiphany was not fully radiant. The full radiance of it, the blinding radiance of it, wasn't full until Jesus died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that rising then, the rising of Jesus Christ, was the full epiphany which Paul is talking about here. It is the dawn breaking the dawn of saving grace. It's the dawn of saving grace. It is the rising of salvation breaking forth upon a dark world. And isn't it a dark world? It's still a dark world. But the dawn of salvation has come. So we read verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. Epiphanied, if you want to transliterate it. The grace of God has epiphanied, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is the first appearing. It is an epiphany of salvation. It is salvation for all kinds of people. But it is also an epiphany for all the people who belong to the age to come. It's not universal for all the people in the old era. It's not. But it is universal for all the people who belong to the new era. The kingdom era who have this heavenly citizenship. In this first appearing, the grace of God in Christ will work so effectively so powerfully in this group of people that they will be changed by way of training. They'll be trained. Trained like a sapling tree that that needs to be tied to a strong stake in the ground so that it grows up straight. Trained. What are they trained in? What should you be trained in? What you're being trained in if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? You're being trained in renunciation. Trained in renunciation. Trained to belong to the new world and renouncing the pull of the old world. You're renouncing it. You're saying, no, I don't have allegiance to that old world. I belong to the new world. You renounce it. You forsake it. You turn from it. Say, no, I don't want to live for that world anymore. I want to live for the new, the new world. So this epiphany 
of grace saves us and trains us and trains us to act in a certain way in the present age. We belong to the world to come, but we live in the present age. But we don't live like we belong to the present age. We belong to the future. In this now time, after the first epiphany of grace, but before the second epiphany, which we're going to get to, we are being trained as if we belong to the future. So that's why then the description. So we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And I just want to pause to be clear, because it's really important at this point. This kind of living, this self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, that kind of living is not some sort of self-flagellation or brutal rule-following or a crushing compliance to impossible standards. That is not what we're talking about. That is what the world religions offer. But that is not what the Christian faith offers. Rather, it is simply living like you belong somewhere else. It's living like you belong somewhere else. You belong. Amazingly, you belong to the future. Like, one of the problems that happen, that's happening with Christians right now is that we're actually losing our sanctified imagination. We don't take what God has given and we, we don't meditate on the wonder of it and realize you're, you're, not, a, you're not a mere mortal, as Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said. You're this, this e- eternal being who belongs to the future, this future age. You need to think a little bit more in that expansive way. There is then a second appearing. Look at verse 13. A second appearing. A second epiphany. Verse 13. The appearing of the glory of, the great, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the second epiphany. And describing Jesus, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now this second epiphany is commonly known as the second coming of Christ. Now if I wanted to get rich, I would write a novel about the second coming of Christ because that's what everybody wants to know. They want to know, well, when, when's he coming? Right? And if I gave you some dates, then, or, or a date, or, you know, you, all, you can change. You can have, give a date, write the book, and when, it, when Jesus doesn't come back, then you write another book. And that's, you know, you've got a regular stream of income. If you buy those books, stop. Stop buying them. The future return of Jesus to rule and reign and consummate the kingdom that he's inaugurated That's what's being spoken of here in this second coming, this second epiphany, this second appearing. And so what he does is he makes his future eternal kingdom, he brings it to us, and the beautiful reality is going to be the same in heaven and on earth, and it's going to be for eternity. 
some of the theologians, they'll speak then of the kingdom as already and not yet. As now and not yet. Or the kingdom has been inaugurated without being consummated. This may be heady, but that's the idea, is that we live then in the overlap of these two ages. We're still here in this sinful world. But the kingdom has come, and the kingdom is yet to come. All is not set to right, so we know that the kingdom is yet to come. But the kingdom has broken into the present. As George Ladd said, it is the presence of the future. And you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are submitting yourself to the rule and reign of Jesus, the future king that has broken into the present now. And he wants us to testify to this dark world that we don't have to have everything be rosy around us for us to follow the king. We follow him now. We don't care if we're still in the old age because we don't belong here. We are sojourners and pilgrims in this life. But our citizenship, as writer to the Hebrews says, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong, and that's where we're going. We're just passing through here. Now, since the first epiphany showed the Son in His humiliation according to the flesh, so this second epiphany shows the Son's exaltation as God and Savior in glory for all to see. As Paul tells the Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there will be those who recognize that fact with joy and delight, and there will be those that recognize that fact as they perish in judgment feeling even God's wrath eternally in hell. But they, it'll be undeniable. They'll be like, yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord. They'll, they'll, they'll acknowledge it, but not in a saving way, in recognizing that God's judgment is rightly upon them. The purpose, then, of God our Savior, Jesus Christ, the purpose is to redeem people, to buy them out. That's what you do with a slave. You buy them. You purchase them. You pay the debt. You buy them out. And that's his intention, is to redeem us. He gave himself for us, as a substitute for us. This is a substitutionary atonement, to pay for our debt. Who is he paying the debt to? He's not paying it to Satan. If you think that, again, don't read those books. Don't watch those preachers on TV. It's all false. He doesn't pay the debt to Satan. It is the debt of righteousness to God. You have to pay the debt of righteousness. And who can pay it? Well, only Jesus in his obedience. Only in his obedience is righteous enough to meet God's standard. Jesus doesn't owe anything. So then when his righteousness is credited to our account, he can actually redeem us because we're debtors. We're debtors in our obedience. We can't obey enough. We can't do enough. We can't fill the bucket up enough of obedience to say, yeah, I'm going to pay you back, God. You can't. But he redeems us by his blood. 
He redeems us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He's even going to purify and make a people for his own possession from you know, these crooked sticks in Crete or from crooked sinners in Calgary. Folks like you, folks like me. We don't deserve it, but he's going to do it, and he is doing it. And they're going to be a people who are zealous for good works. He came to redeem us, to, to change us, to make us pure so that we can belong to the purity of the future. Some people can't even think about the purity of the future, of the purity of heaven, of the purity of the kingdom. As Paul said, to the pure all things are pure. But to the defiled, then they, they can't have a conception of that. But that's why he wants to purify you and purge you, purge you of sin, purge you of sexual immorality, purge you of lying, purge you of that anger, purge you of all these things, because he wants you to belong to the purity of the future. The future, as the book of Revelation tells us, there are no tears there. There's no tears there. There's no tears in heaven. Because it's pure. There's nothing impure. There's no pollution to weep over. All sin and sorrow are purged away. And we will belong to him and to no other. That is what he's preparing us for. And so, friends... My hope is that this has been expanding your understanding of what it means to live between these two ages. Because that's what we're doing right now. If you're a Christian believer, you're living between the two appearings. You're being trained now for the not yet. You're being zealous for good works now because that's what we'll happily, easily do for eternity. You're going to be busy in heaven. You're going to be busy in the new heavens and new earth. You're going to be busy, but it's going to be easy and it's going to be happy. And you will be busy offering all that you do in glory to God. But then, if that's the case, so you've got this picture of heaven that I know you don't think about too much. None of us do. We're all so fixated on, well, what do my notifications say? Oh, it must be so urgent, Right? You know, maybe that's me. That phone is like, some, somebody needs something right now. Instead of thinking, well, what, what about the beauties and glories of heaven? That's where I'm going. That should be the most striking reality in my life and in yours. But there's a phrase that I want you to see that's sandwiched between these two appearings, and it is so important for you this morning. It is the most important thing for you to see. I think it's one of the most important virtues that we need because almost all of us are horrible at it. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting is one of the fundamental features of the believer's life. Waiting for the pace and timing of God. His pace and His timing, it is the pace and timing of a master. 
The master sets the pace. The master sets the timing. And we are slaves, and he is the Lord. We serve him at his pleasure, at his discretion. And right there, that is where it chafes. Because then you don't, and I don't, we resist God's pace and his timing and his ways. Because we think we know better. And this is what Paul wants Titus to understand for himself and for the sake of the Cretan church and for believers today, that believers wait expectantly but patiently for Jesus and his second coming. We wait expectantly but patiently for Jesus. God had to teach me about this this last week, so I had a little trouble. Uh, Maybe you've had similar recently. I was driving down Highway 2 on my way into work, and then the truck seems to lose power. And I signaled to get off on the side of the road just in time, and then it quit. It's got fuel in it. It's all, you know, everything should be good. (laughs) It quit. Two and a half hours for a tow. Day's plans are shot. Certainly very much first world problems, I know. But then, well, what is it? Then I'm, you know, then it starts, you get this kind of cascade of concerns and fears. You know, is it going to be a major repair? Is the motor gone? I've had motors blown on vehicles before, so, I've, oh, okay, motors are going to be gone. Uh, there's some, there were some other bigger things on my mind. And so then, there, yeah, then there's this, this cascade of cares and concerns and fears that breaks on my heart. And I just kind of look up, and you know, it's like, how long, oh Lord? How long? And you might have had, you maybe you're in kind of that season where it's, how long, oh Lord? But my impatience, not just driving, but my impatience at not getting what I want, when I want, what made then that disruption really painful. And because of the way then that my mind works, I immediately shifted into pastor mode. This is one of my problems. And I counseled myself. It's like, oh, okay, I don't really want to listen to myself right now. But I had to confront myself. And I had to conclude that I didn't know what God was doing. I don't know what you're doing. But it was likely that he was trying to teach me something. And if he's trying to teach me something, then if I was to guess at what he was trying to teach me, he was trying to teach me that I needed to be patient, which is not something I'm good at and to wait upon the Lord, to wait upon the Lord. Many of you here, you are weary. You're even weary in well-doing. You've been doing well, but you're weary in well-doing. There's some of you, you're just kicking against the goads. You're just kicking over the traces, as we say. You're just kicking at God. You don't like to be told which way to turn or which way to go or what pace. And so you keep kicking at God. But either way, you're struggling to wait. And because of that, some of you are having a very hard time dwelling on the blessed hope. You struggle to see the blessedness of it, and you don't have much of your hope resting there. You're putting your hope in everything else in the ways that you can put your hope around. Waiting is hard. 
So that's why we have to wait on the Lord. We have to have a zeal in waiting. Zeal, waiting to jump into action. Zeal to move at God's command. Zeal to sit tight until we get further instructions. I close just with three thoughts, three brief thoughts. The first is this, hopefully from this message, but I hope you'll kind of embrace this. I just asked the question, are you aware of this tension between the already and the not yet? Are you, is, do you live like that? Do you live with that tension? Because if you don't, you're not going to understand the New Testament. It's going to be a mystery to you. You won't get the New Testament. And on the one hand, you'll either be passive and hopeless as if the kingdom hasn't come, or you'll be frustrated and you'll be fleshly as you fail to see that the kingdom must be waited for, waited patiently for it, patiently but zealously. Sometimes, you know, on the one hand, oh, well, I can't do anything. Yeah, but the kingdom's come. The epiphany has come. Or you think, well, yeah, Jesus has come. Why isn't everything the way it ought to be? Come on, let's get to it. And you get frustrated and angry and angry with those around you. Because things, there's still sin. Why, why are things not perfect yet? And we're in the now and the not yet. The already and the not yet. Do you feel the tension? But secondly... Are you actually waiting on the Lord? I encourage you to read this afternoon Psalm 27. At the end of Psalm 27, David says, he knows he will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And he is, he, there is this exhortation, wait upon the Lord. That's what we need to do, is wait upon the Lord. Trust His promises. Trust that you'll see goodness in this life. Trust you'll see His goodness in the life to come. You know, Jesus, Jesus was waiting on God for 33 years. Obscurity, a peasant carpenter, not doing anything, certainly not looking like he's on an upward mobility track of global power or something. He looked like a loser. We don't even know what he was doing through his early adulthood. And do you think of how he waited on the cross for those three hours, hanging for three hours on that first Good Friday, waiting, waiting, hanging there, waiting, zeal and waiting as he hung there, and then he died, and then in the mystery, the mystery of Christ being dead in the tomb, truly dead. Even in that, that three-day wait, three days until he burst forth from the empty tomb on that first Easter morning. Friends, we need to imitate Jesus. Jesus was all, he always had zeal in waiting. Zeal and waiting. 
And we wait for Him. We wait for the blessed hope of His second epiphany. And we imitate, in the meantime, we imitate His servanthood and we keep the epiphanies of Jesus as the brightest, blinding focus of our eyes so that we're not attracted to anything else because our eyes are filled with the epiphany of Christ. But last, maybe you're sitting there and you're still all confused by it all. It's all a cloud, dark over you. I I just got to ask, what are you waiting for? What are you, and I say it again, what are you waiting for? Like, what is it? What are you looking for? What, What are you waiting for? Why are you not trusting in Jesus exclusively when by now, if you've been coming here, you know better? Why are you not relinquishing control of your life and relinquishing it up to Christ when you know better? Why are you not trusting Jesus to set things right when you know that He will? Friends, don't delay. The second coming of Christ is coming soon and the window will be closed for the opportunity to enter into the new age, the new world, the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom that is to come. There is a window that you must turn and believe on Him now before that window closes. And for all of us, let us trust Jesus Christ and live with zealous, active waiting like true servants, waiting upon the Lord between the two epiphanies of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I ask that you would open our eyes, lift our eyes up, to see the glory of Christ in his second coming. Father, convict us all by your Spirit. Convict us of our sin. Grant us repentance. And welcome us into your kingdom, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My hope is that we can all pray this prayer today. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Is that something that you know and that you believe today? And the exhortation all of us then is to wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Go in peace. You're dismissed.